Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What's making the U.S. economy so resilient? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me is Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Hey, happy Summer Tuesday, Maggie. How are you? Absolutely. We were just talking about this is the best stretch because we all know it's coming to an end soon, at least here in North America. So we're we're squeezing the best out of the last of the days. But uh, yeah, and and, and it's been a little hard because a lot of people just want to unplug and go away, but you really can't because there is an awful lot going on uh, in the in the economy right now today this the beginning of this week's feeling a little bit you know like momentum's uh, a little bit slow some people are just I think trying to reset and figure out what's going on we saw a, a little bit of a mixed picture for stocks through most of the day although it looks like they're all going to end um, in the red actually Nasdaq kind of bopping back in the in the green again but right right on that unchanged break even level of weakness in the banking sector was sort of weighing on the S and P. 500 treasury yields look like they're off their recent highs, but I mean, they're still elevated. So what, what's top of mind for you, Darius, as we look across what's happening in markets? Well, to me, it's clearly this move that we're seeing in rates and how it's you know come home to roost with respect to you know compressing valuations and equities, raising credit spreads and things of that nature. It's the sustainability of the move that we need to figure out, You know, the terminal level of the move that we need to figure out as it relates to valuations for other asset classes. And then ultimately, What's the what's the you know what's the end game you know right we all you know we got Jackson Hole on Friday in terms of Powell's speech you know where is this going where are we headed is it really truly higher for longer or markets going to have to finally start to price that in which is something we've been calling out and and, and calling out as a, a real key market risk uh, for several quarters now uh, in the context of our resilient U.S. economy theme yeah and it's so we'll, we'll talk about Jackson Hole in a second because it it's it it'll be interesting to see what happens what. How resilient? Let, let's tackle the question at the top. How resilient is the U.S. economy? Is this a a sort of a lag? Are the leading indicators really that strong? I mean, you you have been flagging, hey, this this is this is stronger than everybody thinks for a while, and we are seeing that, but we're still getting a little bit sometimes of mixed pictures. So, what's going on? You know, are, is it as strong as it seems? Yeah, so uh, we'll we'll start by saying uh, a few things. <laughs> so we authored the the theme resilient U.S. economy last August. It's now August of 2023, and I think a lot of what we've been discussing on this program and other programs has really come home to roost in the data. Uh, so to answer your question specifically, Maggie, it, we are seeing it in leading indicators as well. Uh, Brian, if you do up chart one where we show our weather model, uh, we have about 20 different features that each contribute independently to our asset class dispersion forecast on a systematic basis each day. For our clients and that if you look at the top right uh, component there where we show growth 
we track growth in terms of the OEC composite leading indicator, and that number's been trending higher. Um, if you look at the bottom middle of the page where we see the grid regime, the Goldilocks, which is a situation where growth's accelerating and inflation's decelerating, the U.S. economy has now casted itself into Goldilocks uh, for the past five months. And it's likely to continue here in August uh, per the data that we're getting in the leading indicator space. Uh, we obviously on the lagging indicator basis, we've gotten GDP accelerate uh, for each of the last two quarters on a realized basis. Atlanta Fed's up at 5.8%, you know, effectively threatening a third consecutive quarter of reacceleration. And then there's a few other things that, you know, we sort of talked about, I think on the last time I was on the show uh, in late July, we were talking about um, the potential for an inventory rebuild uh, cycle in the second half of this year. When you go back and you sort of look at the level of goods demand uh, in the economy, we're sort of growing goods demand in terms of real goods PCE at 5.4% on a three-month annualized basis in the most recent month. And if we continue at anywhere near that current pace of growth, we're talking about, you know, inventory cycle that's going to have to come home to roost. You know, corporates have been shedding inventories for the past five quarters, but on average to shaving about 73 basis points off of GDP uh, per quarter. And so that's, in our opinion, something that could obviously inflect the manufacturing PMIs. It's already caused industrial production inflect higher. We're seeing it in new home sales, et cetera. And there's a bunch of reasons for all that. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's, since you brought up home sales, that's a good one to talk about because we did see uh, it looked like sales were down, but what's going on? Is this the impact of higher rates or is this supply? What's happening with housing? Well, so there's just no supply. Uh, if you, so a lot, well, I think what we saw today, uh, I think we got the existing home sales number. Uh, that number came in at minus 20.5% on a three month annualized rate of change basis. Brian, you can throw that chart up slide five. Uh, we talk about is residential fixed investment making a comeback. So we've had this weird dichotomy in the housing market whereby the existing home sales market has been sort of starved of supply because investors are not dumb enough to trade their three and a half percent mortgage, which is the effective mortgage rate nationally for seven percent mortgage. Obviously, duh, no one's going to do that. And so, what's really happened is that we're seeing a real big supply response from the builder community. Now, if you go and look at the top two panels of this chart here, where we show uh, building permits, those numbers are growing. It's those building permits are growing seven point one percent three month annualized. We look at uh, housing starts, which is the second panel there, growing thirty one percent on a three month annualized rate of change basis. And then the final um, uh, panel there, where we show new home sales, uh, which are growing at uh, 36% on a three-month annualized basis. Uh, and Brian, if you throw chart seven up there, I can explain why this is this sort of weird dichotomy is happening in the housing market and why it's created some incremental resiliency in the U.S. economy above and beyond what we've already highlighted and have been highlighting since last summer. Um, you know, so if you go and look at uh, slide seven, in the middle panel there, again, we show the effective mortgage rate. Uh, that's the blue line there. It's at 3.6%. The red line shows the, uh, the the marginal mortgage rate. It's at 7.6.2%. And then we show the spread between those two lines. And because there's that widespread, again, folks are not putting their existing homes up for sale. So you're seeing the supply response to the builder community. And that takes us to the bottom panel in this chart where we show the blue line, which is the housing starts divided by existing home sales ratio. That ratio is at an all-time high at 36%. And so builders are really coming to the forefront and saying, hey, we have to fill in the supply gap here in terms of, um, you know, keeping the housing market uh, lubricated and, and, and such. So in our opinion, this has been one of those factors uh, that have contributed to the resiliency of the U.S. economy. It's number seven in a list of 10 factors that, you know, I've had highlighted several times on the show uh, throughout the year. And ultimately, I think we're seeing a lot of this come home to roost in fixed income markets. And that volatility is obviously spilled over to broader asset markets. That's so interesting. So. Uh, did, do, what is, does, I guess, that, does that bode well for home builders? Are they going to be able to sell those homes? Because the new buyers will have to pay those higher mortgage rates, right? 
Uh, yes and no. Uh, so they, 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 there's all these sort of programs that they can do in terms of helping folks with financing, you know, taking yes. points off, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. I don't know what percentage, I, I don't want to pretend like I've done enough research on that, but I don't know what percentage of that in terms of incremental uh, sales that is. But we do know is that housing starts as a percent of total existing home sales is now at an all-time high. And yeah. so there is a supply response. So from the perspective of the economy in terms of keeping construction workers employed and keeping the folks at Home Depot standing outside waving to the you know to the developers buying lumber it's 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 continuing to uh, to, to 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 click so uh, that's so it, interesting so in a way this has come up uh, before but is in a way the higher interest rate environment is actually stimulative yes. as opposed to being restrictive is that yes. something we need to sort cuz Think about because it's contrary to what people think, right? Oh, low rates are stimulative, high rate interest rates. The Fed's trying to slow the economy, but in this case, they're they're stoking housing construction. Hundred percent, Megan. It's all about the long and variable lags and the and respecting the x-axis on these processes, right? And so you think about the Fed jacked rates from twenty-five basis points to five and fifty uh, basis points in a matter of let's call it three or four quarters. You know that happened really quickly, and so. Uh, if you go back, uh, Brian, if you put uh, this uh, slide six on the list where we show all the key factors contributing to our resilient U.S. economy thing, most of these we authored and discussed, you know, going back to last summer in our in our published research at 42 Macro, um, you know, in terms of helping investors understand, you know, the likelihood that we wouldn't go into recession as soon as Wall Street thought we would. Bond yields are, you know, probably had a much more upside relative to what folks were trying to price in to the curve at that particular time. But I'll draw your eye to, eyes to number six there uh, when you look at the longer, long and variable lags. So let's kind of play this out, Maggie, in terms of, you know, kind of how all this stuff kind of hits the economy. When the Fed jacks interest rates to, let's call it five and a half percent, the first thing that happens is no one really needs to refinance. Because if you go back and you look at the duration on uh, corporate credit um, in terms of the broader aggregate corporate credit um, uh, index that we uh, Bloomberg uh, keeps track of and the mortgage back uh, index as well, we have duration in those indices as high as they've been since going back to the early 80s. And so that means that the demand for investors or for, for, you know, for uh, folks in the housing market, consumers, and for businesses in the, in the corporate credit market to refinance debt is actually quite low. Well, not only is their demand to refinance debt is low in terms of like the, the duration on their existing debt, but you also have to think about it from the perspective of the spread between what they're paying on their existing debt relative to what they would have to refinance into. So not only do they not need to refinance in terms of having very long duration uh, securities um, in terms of uh, debt obligations, but they don't want to refinance because they look out and see interest rates as, you know, four, five, 600 basis points higher than what they're, you know, currently paying. And so it sort of slays this whole refinancing game that we've been used to on Wall Street over the past, uh, over the past, you know, kind of, you know, a couple of decades. And what it's done is it's reduced supply of uh, incremental supply in the mortgage market. It's reduced incremental supply in the credit market. And that's one of the reasons we've seen credit spreads um, actually quite tight uh, this year. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it, you know, again, it's important to, I, I think, understand that where you were sitting, the situation we were we were at going into this 
episode because it, you know, it certainly looked different for residents and housing with when back in 07, 08, when people had so many floating, um, but it, with so many people on fixed and the same thing with corporations, you know, if they had cleaned up their balance sheets and they have longer duration, super important to understand that. Um, it's been fascinating to see that because we put that, we put the factor up or the resilient every time you come on Darius and it feels like <laughs> another one of those points is really highlighted in what's going on and we're seeing it with more clarity in the data. So it's very interesting um, in, in terms of this interest rate reset. So Julian and Rao were talking about, you know, yields at these levels in the in their latest monthly pro macro insider talks. And Julian remains worried that yields have further to run. Let's listen to a clip from that and then we'll talk on the other side. You know, it started a few weeks back um, uh, with um, some of these other curves in the rest of the world. We've obviously had tensions in the JGB market uh, with what the BRJ's done there. We've talked a lot about um, fungibility. So the idea that, you know, all of these fixed income markets are linked with each other, right? So if bond yields move higher, if gilt yields move higher, if JGB yields move higher, that's going to apply pressure on treasuries. And the whole thing becomes to a certain degree um, circular. And I think to Raoul's point, I think this thing has got more room to run. I wouldn't be surprised to see um, 10, 10 uh, sorry, uh, 5% uh, in 10-year yields, maybe. Maybe if you get up there, certainly the, the sort of high fours and maybe it's five on 30s. But I think that's kind of where we're going. And I think it goes, and this is probably, I guess, where you and I tactically disagree a bit, Raoul. I think it goes until we have acute pain. And acute pain, to my mind, only comes about in the equity market. That full interview and conversation with Raul and Julian, they do it monthly. It's available on our platform if you'd like to join or upgrade so you can watch it every month. Just scan the QR code and join our waiting list. We're not taking anyone new at the moment, but there is a waiting list, so jump on it. Uh, so Darius, I don't know, where, where do, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Do you worry about higher rates eventually causing a severe downturn in equities? They will eventually, yeah, for sure. It's just about respecting the x-axis on these on these business cycle processes. You know, this stuff just takes time to play out, and I think that's what a lot of investors sort of gotten wrong in the first half of this year. You know, positioning for a recession, both in terms of being long, overly long fixed income and and uh, underweight uh, equities. It's just that this stuff just takes time. You got to respect the x-axis, and so um, you know, to to to, to Julian's point on five percent on the ten year. It's not unreasonable. I mean, obviously, we're not that far now, you know, around 4.30 or so. Uh, but, you know, we've had a view going back to, you know, the summer and fall of last year that we thought we would see 5% on the 10-year. And I think we sort of, you know, kind of got shot gun shy about that view at the end of the regional banking crisis. But it's pretty clear from our tracking of the HA data that there's no regional banking crisis from the perspective of credit creation. And so we have to start really asking ourselves, what is the path to getting to 5% on the 10-year? And I think it's a pretty easy, credible path if you want to put some real math on it. You know, right now we're tracking around minus 30, minus 40 basis points in terms of term premia uh, on the 10-year. Um, and that's not to be confused with the term spread, which is what everyone's citing in terms of expecting a recession. The term premium is the excess return you get for blocking in your, your rate, uh, your, 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 um, your, your, your capital, as opposed to rolling it over for the same duration. And so that's about a minus 40 basis points. If we just go back to zero, you're talking about 475-ish on the 10-year. And I think you could easily see another 25 to 30 to 25 to 50 basis points of lift on 10-year inflation expectations. You know, we run a model um, that we re refresh every month 
uh, for our subscribers at 42 Macro, which is where that that uh, that key factors uh, page that you that we uh, just showed uh, highlighted came from, is that model shows that the underlying trend of core PCE is likely gravitated from around 1.6% in the previous decade to about 3% in this particular decade. And that doesn't sound like much, but if we're talking about 3% core PC inflation, we're not talking about 2% break-evens on a, on, a, on a sustained basis. We're talking about something that looks closer to 3.5% 10-year break-evens on a sustained basis. Now, I don't think we're going there in a straight line, but I think over the next, you know, call it three to five years, it'll be pretty clear in the rearview mirror that inflation settled out at a much higher level mm. relative to the Fed. And this is where we get our, our call for the Fed to ultimately amend its uh, inflation target. You know, they're going to push back hard against that on Friday, in my opinion. But I think two, three years from now, an unemployment rate that's at five and a half or six and a half, as opposed to three and a half, I think you're going to have a, here a way different sort of course uh, from Federal Reserve policymakers. Which is so important to point out because, you know, that's going to impact everyone's model. You know, if you're, uh, by the way, uh, Timothy says key factor sheet is epic. Oh, thank <laughs> you, Timothy. We agree. Um, so you mentioned something, two things I, I want to tease out from that. First of all, the you mentioned that was your thought. And then you had a, a, like a moment when you were reconsidering when we had the banking crisis, I think a lot, I think that happened to a lot of people, right? You had that, that happened in the moment and everybody went, wait a minute, this could be a different game. And then we got past it and people went back and the, the market tracks that the yields we've seen that create a lot of volatility in yields. Do you think we, you just said we don't have a financial sector, a banking situation. Um, Talk to us a little bit more about that because we see Citibank is very weak. We see Charles Schwab laying off people, issuing debt to raise capital. We've had downgrade, more downgrades in the financial sector. They seem to be a, a laggard and dragging on sentiment today. Talk to us about what you're seeing in the in the financial sector and the banking sector. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just it comes down to four simple letters, which is BTFP. <laughs> the issue in the financial sector was all this, you know, duration risk that all these banks had to wear on their balance sheets, and ultimately they don't really have to wear it anymore. And so it sort of removes the kind of left tail from the, the, the you know, the, the distribution of outcomes. It doesn't mean that banks are, you know, they're going to be swimming in money and like Scrooge McDuck anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is we just don't see it. And again, when you track the uh, HA credit data, we're seeing a recovery in credit growth. I mean, again, and it's still it's still uh, down, uh, neg- it's still negative, contracting at a negative rate, but it's it's improving at the margin in second derivative terms. And this is something you can obviously see, just you know, eyeballing GDP statistics. But obviously, you go underneath the hood, and some of these other indicators of the economy, retail sales last week accelerated eight percent mm-hmm. for retail sales. I mean, come on, I don't know how people are missing this stuff. Uh, you know, industrial production accelerated. You had housing, new uh, the home development accelerated. The New York Fed has this index of services uh, sector um, activity that accelerated for the month of August. I mean, this is an economy that is very clearly not being constrained uh, by kind of credit growth, which, by the way, is only about 34% of total private non-financial sector credit here in the U.S. economy. So when you're thinking about credit in the U.S. economy, you have to think off-bank balance sheet. You got to think non-bank financial sector in terms of uh, in terms of those fluctuations. And those fluctuations are always going to move with where the S and P's at, where credit spreads at, where the dollars at, and ultimately where interest rate volatility is. So Dan asking, you mentioned Jackson Hall. So people like to say, oh, it's a sleepy summer conference for bankers and a lot of wonky conversations, which is true many times, but it's also an opportunity for them to reset market expectations if they choose to and if they want to. So it's always something we have to pay attention to because you never know which one it's going to be, super boring or, you know, they drop a bomb. Uh, Dan asking, 
I think a really smart question. Um, we we're just talking about will the tenure hit five percent? Does the Fed really need to raise rates again if the bond market is doing the work for them? Yeah, no, no, they do not. Uh, I don't believe the Fed has to raise rates again, and certainly it's unlikely that they're going to by September. Because it's unlikely that we're going to see anything in the in the development of adverse wage, adverse labor, adverse inflation data, materially adverse relative to the current state of the current condition of the data between now and then for them to raise interest rates. And I think the further you go in time, the more likely the Fed just gets comfortable with how much time this process is taking. Right? Mm -hmm. They've already kind of given us a hint on their, their future policy. Right? I think they they you know when they had that awkward you know I think it was the June FOMC when they had the awkward. You know, like, no, the pause, but we're going to put two more hikes on the dot plot. I think that was just Powell acquiescing to some of the, you know, the hawks on the committee or vice versa. Maybe they were acquiescing to Powell in terms of uh, wanting to maintain the hawkish posture. But the reality is they don't need to. I mean, it, it, eventually these rates will become restrictive as we move forward in time and we start to lose, you know, borrower A, borrower B in the household sector, borrower C, borrower D in the corporate sector. These things just take time as, you know, firms and, and, and households you know, have to come up to the uh, belly up to the refinancing uh, beast. That's just, it's just, just going to be a long process. But ultimately, you know, we're ultimately going to get some of the outcomes the Fed wants in terms of slowing the economy materially enough. It's just not happening now. And the reason, you know, again, we just go back to that slide, Brian, I think we can just leave this up for the whole discussion is slide six. Keep <laughs> practice contributing to our resilience economy theme. And, and I'll be frank, you know, not all 10 of these were on the list uh, when we created the theme last August. But we've been accumulating them uh, throughout the year and, and really to just you know continuously push back against this bearish chorus of investors that were constantly you know worried about a recession. Uh, we still think a recession is a motor outcome. It's just not going to come when people think needed to come in terms of their positioning. But one factor that we have accumulated uh, this year in, in terms of supporting this is number eight, which is Bidenomics. Yeah. Right? A record non-war, non-recession budget deficit here in the U.S. economy. I think it was running at somewhere around minus 3.7% of GDP a year ago. We are minus 8.4% now. So we've, we've the budget deficit has widened almost 500 basis points of GDP. That's like $1.3 trillion of incremental fiscal stimulus dumped into the U.S. economy that I'm not sure folks are missing. But if you go back and throw up slide one again, Brian, where we show our macro weather model, and you look at the bottom left of this, um, of this model, Fiscal policy is one of the drivers of this of this this tool that helps us, you know, forecast, you know, performance and dispersion across asset markets. And so the macro weather model has been very keen to call out the widening of the budget deficit all year to this sort of record non-war, non-recession level. In our opinion, that is one of these factors that is contributing to the supply and demand imbalances that we're seeing across global sovereign debt curves. I mean, uh, Raul and Julian were talking about Japan. I think Japan's going to be an issue this fall as well. Obviously, they got a lot of this incremental bond market volatility started last month. With their yield curve control tweak, I think they're going to have to tweak it again uh, if they if they go through the, in September with their uh, the lapse of their of their um, the subsidies for fuel and, and and food. They have subsidies on, have had them on for quite a while now, and if they continue to if they lapse those in just September, we're going to see Japanese inflation spike again. And if you look at the BOJ's October 31st meeting, I think that's when we could see a really material change uh, to yield curve control. So I don't think we're out of the woods yet as it relates to bond market volatility, not domestically because of the resilient U.S. economy. Mm -hmm but also globally because of Japan and its resiliency as well. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I mean, global, uh, both global policy uh, and also geopolitics are really going to start to factor in here. They always do, but 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 we've really been hearing a lot of smart people really fly that, put a pin in it. Thank you for talking about Japan and putting that early heads up on October, Darius. I know we're going to talk in October and say, we told you back in August <laughs> if you were paying attention, but it's true. Um, I, I just want to flag a couple of things about that. We are uh, having uh, Marco Papage is talking to uh, uh, talking China on Friday. Uh, on the platform live. So if you're tracking what's happening in China, which is also super important um, and, and the impact on Asia, encourage you, Chen Zhao, he's on with, I encourage you to check that out. And there's a robust discussion. You folks are on fire in the chat today. I love it. Both of our chats are lighting up um, a, a, a robust discussion about bonds. Um, you know, you and Rao were talking when you did your your talk together. Um, Rao is going to be, and Rao and Julian were talking about, people picked up on Julian saying something about Rao's feeling about bonds. He's been changing his mind, or at least let me put it this way. He does not staying in a trade that's causing a lot of pain. Um, go check out their conversation, the Macro Insiders, they, he details it. But also he's going to be doing a drinks with Rao on Thursday. He's taking over the DB Thursday, folks. So if you have questions for him about all of that, roll up with them on Thursday. I just want to let you all know that since you're talking about it in the chat. So Darius, uh, David Kelly asking, uh, how deep of a credit contraction is your data indicating? Is it indicating one at all? I mean, we're talking about a re resilient economy. Yeah, very modest in the down one to 2% range, very modest on a three month annualized basis. So not, not I mean, this is nothing to write home about. Again, when you're talking about banks pulling back on credit, there's plenty of avenues for you know households and, and corporates to go to, to to get credit these days. You have private credit, all these other new new asset classes, really since the global financial crisis for the corporate sector side, you got your rocket mortgages and you know, there's every time you turn on the internet, like somebody wants to give you money if you you have like a prime, you know, credit score now yeah. as a household. So like there's plenty of money, there's plenty of money floating around the economy. And this is something I think folks are missing as well. Folks are, you know, go back to the weather model. We keep, you know, a lot, we have all these statistics on the weather model. Um, Brian, slide one again, where you look at a, a chart on the right, um, or sorry, <laughs> look at a credit on the right there. If you look at the financial economy cycles, that's the second one down, where we show the growth rate of domestic broad money supply uh, down minus 3.6% on a year-over-year basis. That's that's broad money supply, so it's not specifically uh, credit to the the, the private and financial sector, but it is, you know, it's, it's relatively, um, uh, you know, going to track it re relatively closely. That is a zeroth percentile reading as far back as we have the data, right? I mm -hmm. think it tracked it um, uh, deeper in in the uh, in the Great Depression, but we don't have like you know accurate time series uh, for that particular uh, instrument. But what I think is being missed is that it doubled <laughs> in the last three or four years, and so being down three percent, three point six percent, I think people are sort of forgetting that. There's all this money sloshing around the economy still, and this is goes back to you know the number one and number two on slide six again, Brian, in terms of the key factors contributing to our resilient U.S. economy thing. I can't for the life of me, this is I mean this might be the bee of my bonnet of my career, get to how these Wall Street economists, my my colleagues and and, and competitors on Global Wall Street, 
keep coming up with this concept of excess savings and moreover, keep getting to a concept that excess savings has dwindled. When you go and you study checkable deposits on household and corporate balance sheets from the Fed's flow of funds report, it is there households at $4.5 trillion, uh, our corporates are at $2 trillion. Those numbers are up, you know, $3 trillion and half a billion dollars or $500 billion, um, half a trillion dollars since the beginning of the pandemic. Like there is so much money floating around in our bank accounts and our checking accounts waiting to be spent into the economy. Now, again, not all of it's going to be spent in the economy. Folks want to pay down debt. Folks want to save for retirement. Folks want to save for their kids' college funds, all these other you know factors. But the reality is, you know, worrying about, you know, a minus 3.6% M2 number on a year-over-year basis sort of obfuscates the fact that the number was up like double, you know, in the, in the few years prior. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, and it's, you know, I, th- I think we, it goes to the distinction you just made that it's it's out there, whether everyone feels like they have disposable, right? Or you're in a situation where the haves keep having more and then those who are, you know, in a different situation or feeling the pinch from inflation. But yes, we're seeing a lot of the union action, right? In some of these big contracts that are going through um, and you will have labor hoarding on your, on your, on your key factors as well. So Timothy really nailed it when he said it's epic. <laughs> want to get to, want to get to a couple more of these questions though. Um, so uh, uh, Melson asking, how is U.S. Treasury market liquidity looking to you within the next year or so? Uh, well, it'll look better when we have a recession, right? <laughs> and the market can start pricing in more rate cuts, and ultimately, you know, folks will actually demand this from a from a from a regime standpoint. Right now, we are the market's been pricing in reflation for the better part of 2023. Uh, we're having a, a debate in terms of our global macro risk matrix, Brian. If you throw that uh, slide um, slide four up, uh, where we you know we 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 sort of ask the market, we source the wisdom of the crowd every day, uh, 42 macro to sort of ask the market, hey, what are you pricing in? across the 42 main markets in the world, you know, things like the move index, currency volatility, you know, rate spreads, et cetera, across all these different economies and geographies. And it's looking like we might transition to inflation, which is the risk off version of, of, of reflation. Reflation is the risk on version of, you know, prices going up, you know, things of that nature. Inflation is sort of the risk off version of that. So we keep an eye on that uh, very closely because that obviously has investment implications in terms of what discretionary investors, investors need to do uh, from a positioning standpoint. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. The, the issue with that is neither of those is favorable for the treasury market, right? You see deflation all the way down there at the bottom right um, in terms of the blue line at, at, you know, minus at 14% of the markets that are in that system that are confirming deflation, you know, versus 33% tied for reflation inflation. We got a long way to go before investors are comfortable taking risks, speculating in the, you know, kind of uh, the long end of your treasury curves. Now I'll say that to say this, the outlook for treasury coupon supply is actually quite favorable. Um, if you look at the second half of the year in terms of net coupon financing from the private sector, uh, if you look at the Treasury's most recent estimates um, in, in August, you know we're looking, we're tracking for that for that six-month period ending December 31st, 2023, is likely to be the lowest net financing coupon supply number since the first half of 2018. All right, so it's not really a supply problem; it's just a demand problem. Inflation is still high. Growth is proving extremely resilient, like we said it would. <laughs> and, and no one really wants to buy a bunch of bonds, right? Especially considering the fact that they already probably came into the year long a bunch of bonds because they, a lot of folks came in the year short a bunch of stocks thinking their economy would crash. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and it's it's been a reckoning. Uh, I've got to squeeze this one in. Uh, let me find it. Um, I keep a running list in my head and then I want to actually read what they said. 
Uh, it's about NVIDIA. Bo asking, NVIDIA is up 100% in the last two quarters. Could a sell the news move on this or another plump tech stock in the same boat create some rough waters ahead? Yeah, absolutely. I don't want it. To, to me, that's the biggest event of the week. I mean, Jackson Hole is going to be a nuts news yeah. fest. We get PMIs uh, when tomorrow as well. Uh, but to me, the NVIDIA news is the big news because, again, I'm mostly concerned from the perspective of the markets in the context of this rate volatility because typically rates going up when the economy is doing good is, you know, there's like decades and decades of history of that happening, right? That's, that's, the, his, that's the general history of financial markets is stocks and bonds are positively correlated. You know, rates are rising and economy is doing good and, you know, things of that nature. Um, so, the, the, sorry, stocks and bond yields, my apologies. Um, but going back to this NVIDIA point, you think about the market, and obviously NVIDIA is like a poster child of being ridiculously overvalued, but I mean, that to me is like not even just about NVIDIA. What I think NVIDIA could signal for the broader market is that if it's not going to come on earnings, we can't rely on multiple expansion anymore. If you look mm -hmm. at the market, we're trading at 20 times earnings. That's in the 86 percentile on historical basis. Um, we look at uh, price of sales at 2.4 in terms of S&P uh, price of sales. Next 12 month sales, that's in the 90th percentile. Uh, enterprise value to next 12 month EBITDA is at 13.5. That's in the 86 percentile. This is a very overvalued market in the context of the interest rate outlook. And so you need earnings growth as an investor to make you feel comfortable taking earnings risk, given that the equity risk premium is probably likely very compressed or at levels that we haven't seen in decades. And so if we get something that looks like, hey, AI is not going to create this panacea of earnings growth, then we're going to have to start rethinking our positioning as investors, as a broader investor community. And I think that may be what's happening uh, over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And, and, and I love the way you put that, Darius, because you're not saying that's what it is. You're just saying this is what you need to look for. Because the thing is, NVIDIA did beat on earnings, right? That they surprised everyone when there was a lot of doubt in the market. People were like, oh, oh that's are, these are real numbers. So that that's what you want to, that's what you want to be really paying attention to. And if not, you're going to create this environment of of um a lot of disappointment. But but we've got to see, right? That's why this is going to be so critical because they've kind of they've kind of uh, proven the doubters wrong before. So everyone's and it's funny when you listen, so many people are just they don't think they can keep doing it, but there are so no one wants to short that stock going into yeah. that report because they've been killed before. You never, never short a, a stock in a raging bull market. That's like rule number one of finance. Like, you know, like <laughs> none, no one watching this show is smart enough or good enough in market timing to like be consistently good at that. So don't even try. I would highly recommend you not try that unless you like losing money over yeah. long periods of time. Uh, but one thing I will say is that you brought up something that you know I thought was a good kind of place to end on, which is. You know, you said, hey, like, you know, you're you're showing us what to watch for. And that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing as investors. So much of what I've seen, you know, just, you know, kind of been running my own business for the past two and a half years now. And just like yeah, I've been, you know, I've been on Wall Street for, you know, 15 years now. A lot of what you see, and thank God for Twitter, because it allows us to see in other people's processes or lack thereof. And I'm not even trying to be disparaging. I'm just sort of calling this out because it's something that I see that I think I can help folks with, um, not even just at 42 Macro, but just with this statement. So much of what I see out there is investors creating investment theses and then looking for the next piece of information to support that existing investment thesis. And I don't see enough of what I do with Head 42 Macro, what we do or what our clients do on the institutional client asset management space. A lot of what we're doing and they are doing is just refreshing the same process day after day after day with the incremental data that's coming. And it's either pushing you incrementally in one direction or it's pushing you incrementally in another direction. Right, like I don't really care if the market crashes or not. I know that the probability of a market crash is rising based on our global macro risk matrix and some of the other quantitative signaling uh, that is coming to our process. But 
trying to call that ahead of time? Like, why didn't you call it on June 1st or June 2nd or June 3rd? You know what I mean? Like, why now? And the reason why now is that, you know, the constant refreshing of the Bayesian process. So I just want to make sure investors are focused on better investors. Yeah, that's so important, Darius. And it's what we talk about all the time in the academy as well, how to build your framework. Um, and, And you show us all the time a peek into all of the work you've done to set it up that backs up your feeling. This isn't just, you know, throwing a dart. Um, it, it is super important to understand that. And we're going to talk about that in depth. Uh, Roger Hurst and I are doing an academy session uh, next week, and we're going to talk ab- exactly about that. So I'm so glad that you brought it up because it is really important for people to do that hard work. And we appreciate you sharing yours with us, Darius, always. Always a pleasure, Maggie. I appreciate you guys for having me. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And thanks for all the fantastic questions and discussion. You guys were on fire today. We will be back tomorrow. Brent Donnelly is going to be with me for the extended hour. So we'll be having a lot more conversations about uh, the global economy. So roll up for that with your questions. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 